Welcome back to the One God Report podcast. In this episode, we continue our interview with Mr. William Gilmore. William and his wife, Kathy, and their seven children live in Colorado. In part one of our interview, William explained how for a number of years he believed that the Bible declared that the one true God was the Father, but that Jesus had pre-existed as a created being prior to taking on a human nature. This belief is called Arianism, after the 4th century church leader Arius, who had a similar view. By the way, the term Arian in a theological context has nothing to do with the term used by the Nazis in a racial context, Arian. The two words sound the same, but are spelled differently and have totally different meanings. Now, in this episode, William explains how the Apostles' Creed, also called the Old Roman Symbol, and certain scriptures, first from Peter and then from Paul, and then also communication with one God believer, Anthony Buzzard, helped William understand that the so-called pre-existence of the Messiah was not literal. In contrast to a literal pre-human existence, the human person Jesus Christ was pre-known by God in the plan and purpose of God. That is, Jesus Christ is a human being, a human person, not a pre-existent divine person who took on flesh. So back to our interview. William had been attending Regent Seminary in Vancouver, British Columbia. I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, so how did you end up getting back in Colorado? In 2006 at Regent, I started reading all of the works of Wayne Grudem and all of the works of Bruce Ware. And they're the ones that are talking about this economic subordinationism within the Trinity that you just mentioned. Mm. Okay, and you know these arguments, you've heard about this economic subordinationism, and so they're writing all these things about the economic subordination of the sun. And then there was an Anglican man, Kevin Giles. And he's the one who's basically responding to them. He's the egalitarian voice for them, and he is saying, your doctrine of standing against women ministry or whatever, it's Arianism. You say it's economic subordinationism, but it's really Arianism. Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware are sitting there trying to reconcile this to Trinitarianism. And I'm reading all of this stuff from both sides. And I'm just saying, hey, Kevin Giles, you're right. I'm, I'm an Arian. <laughs> <laughs> so again, to me, the answer to the solution wasn't like to try to fake that I'm some sort of Trinitarian who believes in the eternal economic subordination of the sun. I'm just straight up willing to say, let's fight this out on real terms. And I'm a Unitarian. So again, I knew myself to be an Aryan in 2006. But what I didn't understand, and this is just amazing, I, I did not understand until 2009 that Arianism is a form of Unitarianism. <laughs> so I didn't know that I was a Unitarian. So basically what happened was I was just very frustrated by all the problems at Regent and they were too big for me to solve and too complicated. So I only stayed at Regent for one semester. But I left there thinking, okay, this issue of gender roles in the church is really serious. And this issue that they are Trinitarian and not Arian is very serious. But I didn't see myself as being able to do anything at all about those things. And I moved back to Portland, Oregon, because we didn't really know where to go after I dropped out of seminary. During that semester at Regent, the one other issue that I studied alongside Arianism was the millennium. And I had started out there as premillennial, 
And then when I studied the issues of the millennium there in the fall of 2006, the fact that I was uh, converted to amillennialism from premillennialism, at that time, it wasn't super important to me. It was just like one of these things where I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. But I was much, much more interested in the Aryan question. And so we moved to Portland and I was just going to look for a job. But again, I was very, very, very interested in theology. And so I was going to Western Seminary and I was going to Multnomah Bible College there in Portland and I was using their libraries all the time, but I wasn't going to their schools. And I didn't at that point have any plan on going back to seminary to pursue any sort of degree. But I was still studying a lot on my own and we started going to another church. We were going to this church because I thought they were solid on gender roles. And this was the church where what really happened that changed my life was at the end of the service one week, we said the Apostles' Creed. And this was sometime in 2007 or 2008. And I was studying Arianism at the time. And all of a sudden, it just struck me that the Apostles' Creed was Unitarian. I was just like, wow, that is surprising. The thing I didn't want to see at that time in 2008, Bill, was that the Apostles' Creed not only is Unitarian, but it is what I would now call Socinian. You obviously know what I mean by the terminology of Socinian, but we should probably explain it. Um, Please. Mm -hmm. So when I say Socinian, I mean only this. I'm, I'm really, I'm not talking about their soteriology or a number of other issues. I'm basically talking about their Christology. The Socinians held that the beginning of the Son of God was a supernatural conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and that his pre-existence, it wasn't literal, but it was in the mind and plan of God and in the declared purpose of God. And that this was also the Jewish idea that the Messiah was plan of God, you know, and had existed in the mind of God and in the purpose of God from the beginning. But the Messiah didn't literally pre-exist in heaven. Mm -hmm. So I was so incredibly opposed to this idea. And the irony was at Mount Loma Bible College, I was reading the journal for the Radical Reformation. That was where I was getting all of my information. That was the original magazine that Anthony Buzzard and those guys all started to produce was the uh -huh. Journal for the Radical Reformation. Okay. So it was from the beginning, from about 2008 was the first time I ever heard of Anthony Buzzard, was the first time that I ever heard of Socinianism. But he was also in that same journal posting a lot of things about John Milton and about a lot of what had happened in England in the 17th century, where Arianism had come to the forefront there. Mm -hmm. um, let me, so, William, let me interrupt you one second. So is this journal in the Multnomah Bible School Library? Unbelievable. <laughs> okay. Interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a tangent. I ended up being the librarian assistant at Western Seminary. And I was astounded by the things that I found in there. You know, the books on Unitarianism, they hadn't been checked out much, but I checked them all out. So here I was. I was the librarian assistant, and I was like the one Unitarian. And a lot of my professors knew that I was Unitarian by that time. And even my boss at the library knew that I was Unitarian. But yeah, yeah to answer your question, the journal for, for the Radical Reformation was on microfilm in Multnomah Seminary, oh, which microfilm. is shocking. What? <laughs> well, just microfilm. Most people aren't going to find it. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I found it. Do you know what I mean? I, I originally found it online and then I found all of it there. But again, Bill, I was always just researching things on my own because I was interested in it. So... 
it's in the library of Multnomah School of the Bible that you come to understand that the Messiah is a human person, a human being, a man. I wish, right? No, Bill, that's not unfortunately at all what happened. <laughs> okay, well, how, how did it happen? How did you come to understand that Arianism was wrong, that Jesus didn't? No, so I was an Arian from 2006 until almost, I think it was about 2013. So I was an Arian for about six years, and I knew about Socinianism from the Journal of the Radical Reformation, but also I was at that time in 2008 for my job, for my career, attempting to make a documentary film. And the film that I was attempting to make was on the subject of polygamy at the time of the Reformation. And so I was doing a lot of studying of Martin Luther at the time and of John Calvin and of Erasmus. And I was doing a whole lot of studying about the kingdom of Munster. And I was shocked that Martin Luther in his writings was always talking about Socinianism and was never talking about Arianism. That didn't make any sense to me at all because the Unitarians that I knew of from the Reformation among the Anabaptists held some crazy views, but they were Arian and they were not Socinian. And so I did not take Socinianism seriously. Although Anthony was the major scholar who was showing me and giving me a lot of resources, I was much more interested in John Milton and I was much more interested in the fact that at Cambridge, there was a lot of the guys that had came out and were Arian. So to me, Arianism was the end of the Reformation, and Socinianism was a departure from the faith. And I wasn't even open. I was hostile to Socinianism. To me, Arianism was the gospel truth. The Nicene Creed was the creed to defend. But I had a problem with the Apostles' Creed, right? <laughs> because I knew that the Apostles' Creed was older than Nicene Creed, and I couldn't figure out how it was possible that the literal pre-existence and incarnation and his mediatorial role as the creator of the heavens and the earth was not confessed in the Apostles' Creed. I didn't know what to do with that, and it really, really bothered me <laughs> a lot. And so I was doing a lot of studying on that, but so far as I was concerned, the Nicene Creed was the way to go. So far as I was concerned, the Nicene Creed was Arian. And somehow or other, while well, I talked myself back into going to Western Seminary, because I thought that there was somebody there who was going to take a pretty strong position on gender roles. And I thought that maybe I would be able to talk to him about Arianism because I was still looking for a way into the church. I think even during that time when I was studying, I still really wanted to be in the church. And <laughs> it's kind of funny because later on when I left Western Seminary, they said to me, they were like, who do you think you are, Martin Luther? They were right. I think that when I re-entered into Western Seminary, my whole idea was I can get these guys to embrace Arianism and we can just start the Reformation from right here and we can just come out and we can do what I've been wanting to do since 2006, which is we can fight the gender roles battle on an Arian basis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and we're going to do that from Western Seminary and I'm going to talk them into it. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's how I talk myself into I will go there. And so that was the place where I took systematic theology. It was in September of 2009 that I, first off, that I began to realize, okay, I have to admit that I'm a Unitarian, and I have to admit that I already know these things and I'm never going back. So behind closed doors, I started telling my professors that I was a Unitarian and that I was an Arian. What happened was that I discovered that none of them cared about the fact that I was Unitarian. Hmm. Their problem with me was my Arianism. Did they line you up with 
Jehovah's Witness? Or did you ever consider? Basically, yeah, Jehovah's they Witness? they thought, yeah. But I'm talking to them and I'm listening to what they're saying back to me. And they're coming back to me, right? And these are men who have doctorates in theology and who are teaching systematic theology and who were elders at the church that I was going to. And very talented men, men who I aspired to be even. Probably, yeah, I wanted to be like them. And they're not taking issue with me on my theology. They're taking issue with me on my Christology. And I'm coming back to them and being like, you guys are all so sinians. You guys believe that Jesus is the incarnate word of God, but the word of God isn't like a literally pre-existing person who, and they were like, yeah, we don't even know what that would mean. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know, what? Like, you guys believe the same stuff as Anthony Buzzard, but you guys are all teaching Trinitarianism at the seminary. And you're all defending Trinitarianism in the church that we all go to together. Hmm. I'm just flabbergasted by this. Yeah, you in, know, actually, no. wait, you, you kind of lost me there. Let's let's try and explain that a little bit again. So you say that they didn't have a problem with your theology, meaning that God is just one, right, and not tripersonal. They didn't have a problem with that? No. In terms of me being in the seminary and stuff like that, they were all like, you know, we're not surprised because you're a Puritan. <laughs> Basically, the response was, you're such a pain because you're you're too exacting and everything, mm -hmm. you know. And you're also a pain because instead of just graduating and going on with your career, you're coming to us in the middle of seminary and you're telling us this, you know, why you're in our class for systematic theology. So it came out in theology too on the person of Christ that I just about halfway through the semester, I felt that I had to go to the professor. And so I walked in there and I said, I'm an Arian and a Unitarian. And he was like, of course, like annoyed. Do you know what uh, I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, so, oh, you're I mean, what, What's what? his problem? <laughs> to me, in the Trinitarian world, as long as you use the language, yeah, I believe in the deity of Christ, that's okay. That's the litmus test. Is that what they wanted to hear from you or do they want to hear uh, He didn't different? even want to hear that. He made so many mistakes with me on that first meeting. And I was like, you were defending uh, Trinitarianism tooth and nail in our class last week. The passage that we had been discussing in class that made me come to him was the very famous passage from Matthew, which was, no one knows the day or the hour, not the elect angels, not the son, but the father only. And do you know what in my systematic two theology class in front of all of those students that made me go to him behind closed doors and challenge him? He taught in front of that class that Jesus was lying. Ooh. That Jesus was telling a holy lie. Because Jesus is the incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity, that of course he knew the day and the hour, but he wanted to discourage us from seeking, so he told, you know, a white lie. This was the first time I ever heard that. Well, at least in some ways he's so being offended. honest. Right? No, but in some ways he's being honest, because that's almost what you have to say. Or you got to come up with something like, I heard another apologists say recently that in his subconscious the human subconscious of jesus he didn't know or something but that's just another way to say he well everybody else lying. in the class just accepted it right you know jesus told a holy lie and so of course i immediately went out to research that and i found out within a week that that was actually the protestant position he's teaching something that had been taught for the, by protestants for the last 500 years and i found it in martin luther and i was just like wow just wow jesus the liar and this was just not okay with me <laughs> just, and so i was just like look i'm an arian and by the way i really believe that he didn't know and, and my explanation for it was he doesn't know because he's like the elect angels he's a creature 
he's not the one God. The one God is the Almighty. And so to me, it's not a problem. I thought that there was an understanding of that text through an Arian lens, that the Son of God is not Almighty. He's not Almighty and he's not omniscient. And so I thought that I had a better way of dealing with that text. It didn't make Jesus a liar. Yeah, well, in some ways, <laughs> you, know, like, you uh, did. Yeah. What? <laughs> in, I think so, in some ways you did. So how is this going to eventually bring you to your understanding? Well, so this is where I started coming out with them. At the time, there were people in seminaries around the United States that were wanting to write uh, their master's thesis on basically reconciling evangelicalism with universalism. And I've never been a universalist, but there were people wanting to do it. So I wanted to write my thesis on what I called at the time, evangelical Unitarianism. And it was going to be an apology for Arianism. But in the meantime, I was working at the library. I had told two of my professors of systematic theology that I was Arian. I told my boss at the library, who was also a professor of systematic theology and who also taught church history and uh, biblical theology. And they were just going to ignore it. I don't, I don't know what they were going to do, actually. Well, they you know? probably thought they were just being <laughs> nice and they'd let you keep studying. And, you know, as long as you weren't going to make too many waves with other students, yeah. that maybe you can take their classes and you can eventually come along to believe the way they do or something like that. So, well, okay, uh, that's exactly what they told me. And the whole point was to try to get you to stick around so that we could win you over. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what we've been doing this whole time is just buying time that, you know, you'll kind of change your mind. Let's jump ahead a little bit then and tell me, how did you come to understand that Jesus was not a pre-existent being? That he's yeah, so I, I left there. I left the seminary and I had failed out of two seminaries. We had five kids at that point and we were almost out of money. I had to move back to Colorado because honestly, Bill, I was going to be homeless in Portland, Oregon with my wife and five kids. So that's how I ended up back in Colorado. And the Socinian thing kept coming back up. And the Apostles' Creed thing kept coming back. So where I finally got converted in 2013 was that I was working on that film. And I was doing more research, so much research, <laughs> a lot. I had to face the fact that the Apostles' Creed didn't require to confess the literal preexistence and incarnation of the only Son of God. So I reached out to Anthony because I didn't feel that I had the authority to condemn him because he was inside of the bounds of the Apostles' Creed, although he was anathema, according to the Nicene Creed. Does that make sense? Okay. And what I started to see was, in studying the New Testament, I started to see that I couldn't prove that the Apostle Peter ever taught the literal preexistence and incarnation of the only Son of God. What I saw, especially there in 1 Peter 1.20, was the same thing I saw in the Apostles' Creed, and it was the same thing that I saw Anthony teaching. Let me you, read you know Peter 1 Peter 120, 120, right? I'm going to read it right here, okay? Yeah. It says, He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end times for your sake. Through him you have confidence in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So that's the verse right there. If you're asking about what verse got me, that was the verse that I was like, okay, Peter believes in foreknowledge. Peter believes the Jewish belief, okay? Peter believes what the Socinians believe. That was it. Mm -hmm. Okay, right then, 
And I proposed the most ridiculous thing on the face of the earth to Anthony Buzzard, but it's not that ridiculous because scholars all over the world are proposing it, but it's ridiculous. And I also think that this is the reason why the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed exist in so many traditions, uh, in particular in the church that I grew up in, the, the PCUSA. The reason those two is because the one of them is a Sicinian statement of faith. That's the Old Roman symbol, what I would call it now, the Old Roman symbol or the so-called Apostles' Creed. There's nothing about preexistence there. And there is in the Nicene Creed. And these two groups are basically, they're both Unitarian groups, but they're trying to coexist. And what's weird is I think a lot of people think, and this is what I believed, Bill, which is crazy. Ready? The first thing I ever said to Anthony was I wrote him an email and I was like, okay, Anthony, I'm this Aryan who lives in Colorado. And I said, so I'm willing to discuss the fact that Peter doesn't believe it, but that Paul and John do. And Anthony, praise God for this. This is what I love about Anthony, straight shooter. He writes back, he's no niceties. He just goes straight to the point. <laughs> I love it. And he just comes back one line. I deny that the apostles in the New Testament are divided on this question. <laughs> Praise God, right there. Praise God for that. Sorry for the clapping. I know that's annoying. But Anthony just comes back and he, in a nice way, he just says, what you are proposing is ridiculous. Anthony Buzzard was the first person involved in a church that ever was straight with me, that ever just outright was like, look, we don't agree, and I'm not going to pretend that we agree. And I realize that you need my help and everything like that, but I'm not going to let you be shaky on this question, Mr. Gilmore, who's emailing me, Mr. Arian from Colorado. So let me tell you the truth. The idea that Peter and Paul and John teach different Christologies in the New Testament is insane. Okay, I mean, he didn't say it in those words. Those are my words. Mm -hmm. But that's what he's saying. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I deny. And I was just like, wow. At that point, you know, I'm still, I'm an Aryan. And I became obsessed with this question of how can Anthony know that he's right? I became obsessed with this. How can Anthony know that there's no literal preexistence and incarnation of the only Son of God in the New Testament? I mean, because to me, I thought it was pretty clear in Paul, and I thought it was pretty clear in John. There was that scholar who wrote that book called A Man Attested by God from Fuller a couple years back. And he wrote that in the Synoptic Gospels, there's no preexistence and incarnation of the only Son of God. But he seems to believe that there was in the Gospel of John, published by Zondervan. Also, my understanding is that that was the position of James Dunn. Yeah, I think so. You have, you have to go to the Gospel of John. Yep. And I don't know where they are on Paul. It usually has this idea that it, it's not in the synoptics and it's in the fourth gospel. Mm -hmm. But I mean, for me, it was always, hey, it's in Paul and it's in First Corinthians, Arianism, I thought. So it's very early on in Paul. You know, and so this is, the, you know, the whole point that it's not in the synoptic gospels really meant nothing to me because it was in Paul. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's from the beginning of the New Testament. Okay, if it's in Paul, it's from the beginning of the New Testament, I thought. And so I was struggling with this. And I didn't think I was ever going to get to the answer. And I just thought I was going to live my life in this no man's land in between believing that Peter taught one thing and Paul and John taught another. It didn't seem like Anthony wanted to have fellowship with me. But I was like, look, I can't lie to him. I'm still an Aryan. I'm not convinced. And I didn't really know where to go. And what's amazing to me in retrospect is that at the time, a text I did not have at that time, 
unbelievable that I didn't have this text because this is to me now the second most important text in this whole journey after First Peter 1.20, 1 Timothy 2.5. For mm. there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And then right here, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so what I have here is Paul, at a very late date, emphasizing the humanity of Christ Jesus. Mm. <laughs> the man, Christ Jesus. Yeah. Who gave and himself. This is, what? Yeah, this is later than all of those other texts in Philippians and Colossians. Yep. So obviously this is a huge point. So it's when studying this that I come to know about Isaac Newton. He was conflicted about Socinianism and Arianism. Isaac Newton, who's a very intelligent man, was struggling with this debate between Arianism and Socinianism. Isaac Newton wasn't scared of Socinianism. When I start to see that Socinianism had really influenced a lot of the men who were important in the creation of the United States of America. And I was like, wait, Socinianism is not a fringe position at all. So I became very increasingly open to it. I came open to it in the scripture, like right there, that maybe I had been wrong about Paul the whole time. Honestly, it just went down like this. I'm driving around at work one day, and I'm sort of praying through this. And I'm like, God, I just need to know. I don't know whether Arianism is true or Socinianism is true. And I mean, again, not an audible voice just said to me, Anthony Buzzard is telling you the truth. Okay. It was before I had everything in John worked out. I didn't have the text worked out. I still had questions. And I started then paying a lot more close attention to Anthony's arguments, especially those arguments about Philippians, Colossians, John, give back to me the glory I had before the foundations yeah, of the world. John 17, 5. John yeah. 17. Finally, I was, God just opened my eyes. I read all of those apologetics on those really crucial texts again. And I was like, wow, I was wrong. I was wrong. Well, it's a great <laughs> thing to acknowledge that we were wrong. Yeah, I was wrong. And then, you know, I fled at that point to the Apostles' Creed. Turned away from the Nicene Creed completely. And I've probably talked to you more about the Apostles' Creed than any biblical Unitarian ever. I'm the one that talks about it all the time because... I mean, I would say to Anthony, I wouldn't have ever spoken to you ever if it wasn't because of it. That Apostles' Creed was given to me by my church when I was young. Mm. And that's the thing that God used again in like 2008 or 2009 to be like, look at this, Will. This is Unitarian. And now I would say to everybody, look at it. It's not Arian. How could they have overlooked? If it's really taught in Paul and John, it's got to be in the Creed. And it's got to be in the Creed from the first century. You know what I mean? They can't be overlooking this 200 years later. Otherwise, we're dealing with apostates. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's yep. just not possible. Yep. And hey, William, so... Give me a little update right now. You've got, you've got seven kids. How yeah. old are they? And what are you doing for employment these days? You don't want to know. It's like it's an embarrassment. Well, you know? No, that's why I want to know. Start with your kids. How old are they? Um, that's a good question. They're 16 and 15 and 14 and 12 and 11 and 9 and 7. Okay. When we moved to Colorado, the whole thing was I will work full time and my wife was going to be at home with the kids. And my wife was even going to homeschool the kids. And that's what we wanted. 
But the thing was, is we didn't have any money. And so I started just delivering pizzas to make money. I applied for a bunch of jobs. And so I finally just accepted a job delivering pizzas. And at the same time, my wife accepted a job being a substitute teacher for French and Spanish, which was her background. And within two weeks of doing that, they offered my wife a full-time job as a French teacher. My wife has been teaching full-time. And so here we are, that happened in 2011. And I'm still delivering pizzas to supplement our income. Look, at, I think it's great that you're delivering pizzas. I mean, this is, uh, we're waiting for the age to come, right? We know that. And okay, if you get a different job on this earth, whatever. But to me, this is an evidence that you know the, the truth of the reversal that's going to come. Here's the thing. My calling or the thing I'm supposed to do God's going to open eyes that I don't have to convince people. I have to do the best job I can sharing what it is that God has shown me. And I have to leave it up to God and Christ. I of all people should know that that's the way that it works. Okay. Because we've got more to talk about in terms of eschatology. Yeah. But, you know, I'm going to. And we're going to be in agreement, right? I'm (laughs) going to. Oh, I think we are. Here's going to be my (laughs) perspective. And that is that we're in agreement on so much. Yeah, But uh, I think there's going to be some room for disagreement in certain areas. Now, we can talk about what those parameters might be. But you and I, we're not going to agree on everything. We're we're just not. We can explain what we believe. And there are going to be some areas where maybe you and I disagree. But in some ways, I I think my pitch here is going to be, okay, we can have a little bit broader net. That's why I want to talk to you, actually, yeah. because, okay. because unfortunately, I'm the most narrow person I've ever met. <laughs> no, I, and I think it's good that <laughs> yeah, like, a person like you can define it. Here it is. Yeah, this is I'm, what the I'm, Bible says. Black and so, white. I knew that you wanted to talk about exclusivism, yeah. Bill. Yep, and actually, the, the fear, the yep. thing I've been praying about for two weeks is that discussion on exclusivism. Because that's a hard one to have. Yeah. You know, but. Yeah, but were you saved I'm, when you were an Aryan? You don't have to answer it now. But I'm scared about what I read in the New Testament. Okay? Yeah. Oh, I am too. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. Hey, William, let's leave it at that. Okay. Thanks a lot, man. And, yeah. Thank uh, you, Bill. Great talking to you. Thank you, right. sir. Thanks a lot. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. Perhaps in the future, we can discuss with William two topics that were mentioned at the end of the podcast. One was eschatology. William believes that the man of lawlessness spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the spirit of Antichrist described in scriptures like 1 John 4, 1-3, are already present. The proclamation that God is a trinity and that Jesus is God is included in that Antichrist spirit. He also believes that there is no 1,000-year intermediate period between the return of Jesus Christ to the earth and the coming of the new heavens and new earth Rather, the resurrection and the judgment and the new heavens and new earth come with the return of Jesus to earth. See, for example, 2 Peter 3, 10-13 and John 5, 29. The other topic that William mentioned was exclusivism. What he meant by this is the question of, will those who are saved be few? Will those who insist that God is a trinity and that Jesus is God be among those to whom the Lord Jesus Christ says, Depart from me, I never knew you.
If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yishmachu. The humble will hear and rejoice.